Hey, Matt. Hello. Thanks for hosting. I'm just going to take a second and retweet this space. And for everyone on here as well, uh, if you want to really help us, uh, you know, give us a retweet as well. Uh, repost this space so Twitter's algorithms pick it up. <laughs> Welcome everyone. Glad to see the room is uh, <clears throat> is filling up here. Ray, thanks for co-hosting. Uh, just so everyone knows, on my end, I've probably got maybe an hour, hour and a half most today. I know previously we probably went like two plus hours, but that's where I'll probably be cutting it off today. And Ray, of course, if I drop off and you want to continue, you're more than welcome to do so. Well, sounds good. Thanks for the heads up. And thank you for co-hosting. Uh, or for hosting. Uh, so originally, like we did have some scheduling uh, snafus. Uh, I did schedule a space uh, at twelve uh, at noon at noon um, central time, <laughs> but I actually scheduled it at midnight. Uh, so I had to move that around. And then uh, Matt was able to host. So uh, yeah, whenever Matt you can host, I'd love for you to be able to because uh, uh, you. You really help get these spaces started. Yeah, I think every Wednesday at this time, I'll typically be available. I know that we've talked previously about a second time, which is essentially right now plus six hours for those who are in India. Uh, I probably won't be around at that time. I have conflicts every Wednesday at that time for the foreseeable future. Uh, so, Ray, maybe you and I can talk at some point and see if maybe you want to host the, a later one, even on some of the same days that we do the early one. I'm not sure what the right answer is, but in terms of the ones at this time, I should generally be around to host. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. And we do need to get some nice graphics as well. So some nice calendar graphics or whatever, uh, just so we can get uh, on people's, you know, it, uh, radar get this on people's radar give it give some people something that they can expect yeah and i probably wouldn't hurt to maybe even put up a little web page i could probably do something like that too to make this a bit more formal and uh, and reoccurring so i'm down for any of that and of course for any members of our audience if any of you have any suggestions for what would make this more valuable to you or what you'd like to see going forward we, uh, we welcome all recommendations and we'll see what we can do. Now, for those of you who have joined, those of you who have not been here before, we welcome all speakers who'd like to come up and ask questions or make comments related to any Flutter topic. We don't have any pre-built agenda today, so we're kind of willing to talk about any Flutter topic that you'd like, and anybody is welcome to speak. Now, Ray, before we jump into anything the audience might want to talk about, do you have anything that you'd like to cover? Any announcements or updates? Uh, yes. So 
the title of my original sp the, the space I was going to host was uh flutter uh, what is it like flutter complaint or flutter <laughs> uh, gripes or something I, I don't know uh, but essentially there's a lot to be thankful for in terms of like what flutter gives us what flutter brings to the table and why we use it right we love flutter and it's really powerful for businesses and it's just a joy to work with uh, but in the spirit of you know the week before thanksgiving uh, it's usually customary to Uh, get all the complaints out of the way. <laughs> so I have run into um, on my end. So what I've been doing is I'm actually trying to retrain my brain. Um, I'm tr trying to rebuild uh, my brain a bit to uh, recover. You know, uh, I've been pretty sick uh, for a while and I've uh, started uh, relearning Flutter uh, and challenging a lot of like my assumptions um per se uh, because i think there's a lot of problems that i'm running into that maybe if i think about it in a different way that could be solved uh so uh, that's what the title of um the original like spaces i had was and i wanted to sort of i guess share a little bit about my experiences uh trying to uh look at flutter with like a you know sort of pair of new eyes if you will but um i do see that we have some uh listeners here and uh some uh, some people here who might be flutter beginners so their experiences would be very valuable to hear as well um so maybe i can kick that off Uh, and then if anyone else has anything they would want to uh, discuss, uh, they can jump in as well. Uh, so this week, um, I've really tried to uh, look at Flutter with a pair of new eyes and challenge a lot of my assumptions. And one of those is uh, the way in which I build uh, reactive you know, widgets, essentially, like nesting um, reactivity. So a common problem is you have, uh, say, at the top level, a change notifier, right? You have a change notifier at the top. And then in your layout, uh, say, like four or five levels down, uh, you know, in terms of nesting, um, you have uh, additional state. So let's say you have a page view. So a page view has multiple pages. So that's an additional level of uh, layering. And then inside the page view, you have, you know, like a scroll, a vertical scrollable. So a scrollable inside of the page view. So that's another layer of, level, layer of nesting. Uh, so one of the uh, questions I had was, okay, if I want to update state and Uh, I update it, you know, at the top level change notifier. Um, but the actual widget is nested pretty deeply inside of the page view. Um, I used to have to, like, I guess, do quite a few complex things there. Um, and looking at Flutter with a new pair of eyes, um, I came to the realization that uh, let me just uh, set up, you know, like a value notifier. Um, and just call uh, notify listeners and see how it works. And <laughs> what's really great is that, you know, it just works. So I was able to 
just uh, use a change notifier and use a value notifier and completely disregard uh, the complexity of layering, um, any performance considerations, and just build it. So that's where I'm starting from. Um, I'm not, you know, considering the performance. I'm not considering all of uh, the architecture. Uh, I'm just trying to, you know, uh, take these simple concepts, apply them, and then see how it works. And then uh, maybe look at, you know, the performance profile and compare it to, uh, say, a, a more advanced way of building uh, something um, and whether or not there's any benefits to that. Um, and also stripping out, you know, like all the testing as well, uh, because when you build for tests, there's a certain way that you need to uh, build. Uh, but I'm just ignoring all of that and trying to really uh, start from like the basics. Sounds good, Ray. We can dig into that a little more with the audience here in a minute. Maybe that can be the first opportunity for some of our audience members to come up and speak and talk about their experiences. I will just mention a couple uh, updates on my end. So on each of these spaces, I've given an update on the, on the project to port Swift UI over to Flutter. I will say I've uh, finished the calls with all of the prospective UX leads for that project. I've emailed each one to confirm that they're still ready to move forward with their area of UX. And uh, I'm waiting for all of them to confirm. I think a little over half have confirmed. Once that's done, we will actually begin investigating and, and specking out how Swift UI does what it does. Uh, and then we will begin building. So we continue to make progress on, on that project from uh, an administration standpoint. I'm also working on a new YouTube channel. I'm not sure when it will come out. Maybe sometime this year, or I might wait until the beginning of next year. But it's gonna be called Built with Flutter. And I'm going to, uh, in real time, I'm going to build little applications for myself and perhaps my team. For example, the first thing that I'm going to build on that channel is going to be a time tracker that's very similar to Toggle, but it's going to be oriented specifically towards my team, the Flutter Bounty Hunters, so that we can uh, select our own clients, projects, payment models, etc. as we track our time. All the members of my team will be able to download that app from our repository and use it. And I'm going to show everyone how I build that from start to finish through a video series. And that's what each of the video series on, on that channel are going to be. It's going to be some actual little application that I need for my team or for myself personally. And I'm going to show people how I build it with using Flutter from start to finish, which, Ray, kind of goes to your point a little bit, which is that uh, I... I mean, I don't, I don't use any state management libraries. I, most people who know me know that. I don't try to, I don't start projects by bringing in a bunch of packages for other stuff. I do care a lot about testing though. I, I bring that in from the very beginning for sure. Um, but I just start with what is available. And when I need more than what's available, I, I look for solutions or I build one. So what I'm doing on that channel, Ray, might actually... Uh, demonstrate some of the things that, that you're now trying to learn as you kind of go back to the beginning. But with that, uh, I know that we've had some changeover in the audience here, so let me remind everyone, all Flutter topics are welcome, and we're happy to have any one of you become a speaker to either ask a question or make a comment. Uh, so feel free to do so. Ray was just talking about 
kind of going back to the beginning of Flutter and relearning the fundamentals to see if maybe things are different than he originally thought. So I'm curious if anyone in the audience, either an experienced person in the audience, would like to talk about fundamentals, or if there's anyone in the audience who's kind of new to Flutter, trying to understand how things are meant to work, and feel free to ask us those questions and we can walk you through it. Um, so with that, if anybody would like to come up and speak, please just request and I'll, I'll bring you up as a speaker. Otherwise, Ray, feel free to, to continue with what you're saying. Okay, while we uh, wait for uh, Matt to uh, handle uh, the speaker requests, uh, you can just press, you know, the mic button and uh, Matt will bring you up. Matt or I will bring you up. Uh, so while we wait for uh, that to load in, um, let me expound a bit more on uh, going back to the Flutter uh, basics. So uh, part of, there's two reasons I wanted to do that. Uh, one was, uh, I guess the biggest reason is that I was noticing that my flutter development and my velocity uh, was actually suffering. Um, so uh, some of the reasons for that is that uh, once uh, in your, you know, as you develop more and more, you pick up these uh, habits and you pick up uh, certain uh, requirements that you have in your head. Um, so to build this feature, I need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and over time, uh, that list of requirements gets very long. Um, so it makes uh, your development, or at least for me personally, it makes my development um, a bit um, unclear. So I wanted to structure and organize and rebuild uh, that mental you know, process uh, so I can have you know, greater clarity in terms of thinking about features, implementing those features, and, you know, expressing it via code. Uh, so that's one reason. And the second is uh, just speaking with Matt, what's so great about speaking with you is that you are very clear. You're very good at thinking. And uh, I, I need to improve there um, because uh, I used to be better at thinking, but uh, COVID really uh, did a number on me. So I'm you know, still trying to pick up some of the pieces there. Um, so going back to the, like, the root in the very beginning of, like, some of the Flutter concepts, for me, um, I, I really miss uh, Android and XML. Uh, so I started off in an, as an Android developer, and XML, where you could actually see the layouts that you're building, uh, was just so beautiful. Um, and... I guess the concept here is uh, called uh, your uh, mental overhead. So one thing I noticed about developing with Flutter, and I don't know if someone, uh, if if anyone else would also you know notice this as well. Uh, please let me know. Uh, but one thing about developing with Flutter that is not so great is it re requires a very large mental overhead. So when you're building a widget, you need to be able to visualize. The widget, uh, the widgets in your head, and when you come back to your, you know, Flutter project after say a week or a month, and you're looking through your code and your pages again, you need to be able to reconstruct uh, the UI visually uh, via looking and reading at the code, and based on like what I've you know, learned and what I've talked to and I've personally experienced. So I used to be able to visualize 
layouts just by reading the code very well. So I can see the layout in my head just by looking through the code. And it would take me maybe, you know, 30 seconds to a minute uh, to understand what's going on. Uh, but now it's a lot harder for me. Uh, and that might just be because I'm working with so much more. But uh, now it's uh, it actually takes quite a bit of mental effort in order to uh, look at code that I haven't looked at in a while and figure out everything that's going on. And that's just even more complicated over time uh, when you add additional features and complexity um, to uh, your um, project. So th that's one part of where Android and Swift UI with the visualization, being able to see the UI that you're building is very, very powerful. So some things that um, could be perhaps improved is uh, I, I really do wish that Flutter had a way to visualize and to be able to see your layouts, your widgets in, say, your Android Studio side panel uh, like you used to have with Android XML. Uh, so with that, I'll... Uh, Let's see. Oh, we, we do have a speaker. Uh, Cillian, I'll hand it. Uh, you have the floor. I can hand it over to you if you want. Uh, hi, Ray. Uh, thanks. Can you hear me okay? Uh, loud and clear. Okay. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to, to say hello to everyone. First time joining. Um, and uh, I just wanted to to say that that's a pretty interesting idea. Well, like it, uh, maybe you were saying you needed to, but I think it's cool to go back the basics sometimes because we get so we get so kind of complicated with the things that we're that we're doing that sometimes it is good to go back to basics and just explore and you know actually test these things what's happening and, and use the debugger and get down and see what's the difference between the change notifier and a value listener value, value listenable um i'm not sure if you were actually asking for for a suggestion or not um in that regard but one thing that came to mind if you were looking for like a suggestion in a vanilla setup would be um, uh, an inherited widget which propped up your value uh, your value notifier. And then at your lower level or whatever level you wanted, you could uh, use a value listenable builder to just re rebuild that individual piece of your widget tree at, at, like, at a high level or a low level or whatever without rebuilding the whole thing. Um, so that was just an idea that came to mind if that was, if I understood you correctly, if you were looking for an idea. Um, and then to add something from my own perspective, which is, a, I don't know if it's in the theme, but like a flutter rant or something that I think, which is maybe lacking a little bit in my own personal, something that I've noticed myself, uh, is the, the dart core library, uh, date time API or object or However you want to, um, it's an interesting one, uh, because in this, uh, so like, obviously not sure what are the backgrounds of everybody here, but in a similar way to, um, to how in Kotlin, for example, in Android or in other languages, you have mutable versus immutable lists in, 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 uh, in Dart, you have a list, which is not sort of in a type safe way, immutable versus mutable. It, it's like a, a, it's a property that you pass and you don't know and you have to check it at runtime. Same thing with the Dart daytime API. 
it can be a UTC. Uh, it can be a UTC date time or it can be a local date time, and you don't really know in advance. Um, it can be a little bit of a pain, um, and also like if you compare to um, the Java eight, for example, like in Java eight they brought in a nice set of APIs there, um, and I don't know. It, it's just it is a little bit of a. I, I think there's some sort of a incompatibility or a compatibility issue where. Dart was obviously created as a replacement for JavaScript, and I think maintain uh, compatibility, I suppose, with JavaScript uh, because parts of the implementation are actually out to JavaScript. But uh, yeah, that's one one pain point of mine. Uh, I've had to build a kind of a little wrapper class or a couple of wrapper classes for like a UTC date time and a local date time, which are type safe and they can be converted. So it's a little bit nicer to work with, but uh, yeah, that's one gripe on my side. Hey, thanks for the suggestion, Cillian. Um, and uh, yeah, with inherited widgets, uh, you can do that. Um, you can also do it with uh, provider.watch um, uh, scoped. So you can uh, add a scoped uh, parameter to only listen to a part of a, a change notifier. Um, um, so more so part of the experimentation there that, uh, and try, part of uh, the ideas and preconceptions that I'm trying to clear are, uh, you know, there's certain, a certain art to building apps, right? There's a certain art and method. So uh, I'm trying to uh, like uh, rework some of those processes and maybe uh, figure some things out that I don't know before. For example, the question is, uh, how many value notifiers can you have before your app starts slowing down? Um, how many page view pages uh, can you have before your app starts st slowing down? Uh, how many... Uh, how quickly do the page view transitions uh, happen um, and how, if you transition too quickly, uh, what is the uh, threshold at which you start, you know, getting frame stutters and frame drops? Uh, so I don't know that. Um, and maybe it's not right to make assumptions in development um, to make these guesses and have it affect my processes if the processes, if these assumptions aren't grounded in actual reality. Uh, so for example, uh, if I have, you know, say 20 value notifiers and I'm nesting them, right? Uh, so on the face of that, that might seem really bad of, you know, development wise and for performance. But in actual practice, when you run the code, uh, there might be no difference at all. Um, so, uh, I'm trying to, I guess, think more clearly and challenge some of the assumptions I've been making. Um, so uh, if that makes sense. And then to your point about the date time, uh, uh, I do see how, uh, I, I do see the problem you're describing, but my perspective on the date time is that I think it's one of the best date time libraries out there, like compared to Python, uh, Dart's, and Flutters is just so much better, so much, so much better. Um, and compared to Android, uh, yeah, it's like at least 
twice as good. Um, I've had nothing but, you know, really good experiences with the daytime library in general. Uh, so I guess that's a, a huge plus for uh, Dart and Flutter. Oh, and okay, uh, we do have uh, two new speakers up here. Um, so I think well, let's go in order. Uh, we'll first go to Miller and then uh, to Frey. Um, so, all right, uh, Miller, uh, you have the floor. Uh, hello, uh, I trust all of us are well. Uh, so to your point regarding uh, regarding the uh, visualizing the, the tree, now, I do agree because at some point while using Flutter, I was like, it would be nice to have a, a visual, a visual in the like in the IDE, the way you do for Android when you are uh, when you are doing the the XML stuff. Uh, however, uh, thinking through it much more, uh, it came to mind that uh, in Android, the reason why the the visualizer is there is because uh, in Android you have to do a build each time to run like on the device, but in Flutter, we do have the advantage of hot reloading. So you can just uh, do a hot reload to see the, the UI changes immediately they are done uh, as compared to Android where you have to like, do an entire new build each time. Uh, so I am like, uh, it does make sense to want the the tree visualizer because at some point because of how big the widget tree can get and how everything is a widget and uh yeah i mean it can get pretty okay not ugly per se but pretty uh pretty complicated pretty yeah just pretty yeah pretty nested and so yeah just having like a like a visual tree on the ide will be great but i assume the reason why we don't have that is because uh we have the ability to like do hot reloading though i am feeling uh, uh same as you it will be nice to have a, a tree visualizer in the in the id yeah oh great thanks for sharing uh yeah let's go to frey uh frey you have the floor thanks uh hi everyone um about the thing that you said about visualizing uh, the the tree, and uh, it's definitely something that I noticed as well. Uh, and it would be nice to have um, some type of NIDE um, visualization of what those widgets are going to look like. But what I've noticed that I tend to do a lot when I come into uh, an application that I haven't worked on in a while, or it's just something completely new, is I always use the, the widget inspector in the DevTools. And I just open up the app and I just start saying, okay, just select this widget. And I click somewhere on the screen and it takes me to the code. And it works kind of the other way around in that sense. Like I can find my way back into the code in, a, in an app that I haven't seen before. And most of the time that solves my problem, but I really understand um, the fact that we like to have it the other way around as well, because I was used to it as well from Android, just to have um, your XML and right next to it, uh, actually see it visually. And you can even add it up with um, mock data and, and these things. Um, that's something nice that kind of went missing, but I think there's other tools that kind of replace that, but 
it's maybe not 100% the same. And on um, the other subject of reducing that complexity, um, what I've noticed as well, like if we have um, a lot of things bound to our widget tree uh, with all these uh, change notifiers and so on, and there's state connected to it everywhere of the tree, it becomes quite hard uh, just to understand as well. And in most of the, um, the applications that I, I tend to uh, go, uh, go into, it's a lot of times I, I help out at startups, people that didn't really have a lot of Flutter experience and they started building their own app and got stuck at a certain point. Uh, I try to make it as easy as possible and just go back to certain basics. And uh, a lot of the time, I'm, I notice like, okay, let's stop using all of these uh, state management tools and just take a, a little step back and maybe just have, it could be just um, a normal clause that just has a stream provider that, um, or a, a stream with a stream builder connected in, uh, connecting it to the widget tree and it keeps it very basic. And it's on that way, I noticed like it's been, um, I was able to like reduce all of these things um, affecting the widget tree and that you kind of have to be mentally aware of as well by splitting them up in just basic Dart classes and um, trying to get them as loosely coupled as possible. Thanks, Wright. <clears throat> um, so I'll, I'll also follow up with some thoughts on those topics and what Ray described. I wouldn't be against having an IDE visualizer the way that uh, that Swift UI kind of does it, or really, I, it's not, I don't know if we should really call that Swift UI or whether it's Xcode, I mean, whichever one of those is is more impactful in terms of making that happen. I wouldn't be against that though, that, that'd be a nice little feature, um, though I think there are plenty of mitigation opportunities to make your life easier, uh, even without that. One thing I'll point out about Android's XML I'll mention two things about it. You know, perhaps the focus there was really the fact that you can visualize Android's XML in the IDE, but to the extent that one might feel that XML was somehow simpler than a widget tree, uh, I'll point out two things. First is that you can actually make your widget tree look like Android XML. I mean, if you just replace those angle brackets with kind of dark constructors, your widget tree would be the XML tree. It's the same thing. You're composing UI together with properties. If your widget tree looks like a huge mess compared to an old school Android XML tree, it's probably because you're defining a bunch of builders in line and you're probably defining a bunch of user gesture handlers in line. For example, maybe you have some anonymous on tap methods in the middle of your tree to go along with the builders in the middle of your tree. Those are all decisions, and so what you can choose to do is take every callback on tap, uh, on pan, start, et cetera, and defer that to local methods so that you don't include those anonymous implementations in your tree. Then you're going to start to look a lot more like the Android XML level of complexity. Second, you can try to segment your widget trees based on where builders go. That's not always worth it. But if you have a builder in the middle of your tree, then maybe you should have 
like two trees, one that builds the part inside the builder and one that builds the part outside. Maybe that's easier to read and to visualize. The second thing to remember about Android XML is that the XML does not demonstrate anything to you about what happens after frame number one. Android XML configures your view hierarchy for the very first frame, and from that point forward, you don't know anything about what happens to that view hierarchy. XML has no impact on it. XML reveals nothing. So yes, it might feel simplistic to see that first frame, but what about the next 10,000 frames? What about animations that are going to run? You can't see them. You, can't, you don't know if they're there or not. You have to actually go into the source code probably for a, an activity, which probably contains some fragments, which probably does mutable work on a view hierarchy. Uh, so I was also an Android developer for a long time. And I remember that it was, it was prohibitively difficult to build a custom view. There, was, there were so many responsibilities to start even the simplest custom view that we never did it. Instead, we were just constantly uh, styling and reconfiguring existing Android views because we just didn't have the time to go figure out all the ways to marshal data in and out and hook into that life cycle. So I'm, I tend to be very happy with Flutter as compared to Android. The reason I'm a Flutter developer now is because I felt that it was just so incredibly good in terms of productivity and simplicity as compared to, uh, to Android. I left Android behind and I'm glad I did. Now, as for visualizing your widget tree there and, and kind of keeping a sense of what you're actually building with widgets, there are a few strategies here. Uh, first, from kind of just a code health perspective, I think developers should pay way more attention to naming and documentation. Even if it's a personal project, even if it's a small project, I try to write useful Dart docs for every class and every public property, and often even for private properties and methods, because eventually someone's going to have to understand those too. And when, that, when, when you have really great names and when you have really great docs, uh, it's a lot easier to remember what those widgets of yours were meant to do. From there, if you can also leverage tests. Tests show you what's needed to deploy a given widget tree, what kind of data might be necessary, what kind of configuration like providers or anything like that that you're trying to use. That'll also give you a head start. So you can just jump to your test, see how it's used, and then remind yourself of what the intention was. Another strategy that I use is I will take pieces of an application and I will create entry points that launch just that piece. So let's say that I'm building a, a payment flow. You might have to test that payment flow dozens of times to figure out how to make all of that payment, all of those payment steps work correctly. The last thing I want to do is run the whole app every time to try to make sure payment works. So instead, I engineer the API for the payment flow so that it requires the absolute minimum information from the rest of the app. And then I create a new main entry point in either the, depending if we're building a package or building an app, but either the example app or the app itself, I create the new entry point. That entry point uh, calls run app with a material app, and then it shows just the payment flow. 
So I can literally run just the payment flow, test, verify just the payment flow, debug just the payment flow. I might do the same thing with a contact form. I might do the same thing with a social feed. I take these pieces and I make them runnable independently, which not only helps me focus on them during development and debugging, but it also ensures that I don't entangle those features with all the other features in a way that's inseparable and indecipherable. Another uh, term that you might use for this is encapsulation boundaries. Have, have well thought out, strong encapsulation boundaries. I think if you take those steps, you're likely to find that anywhere you go in your project with at least just a minimal amount of effort, you can remind yourself of why you created it, what it's supposed to do, and how it works. Uh, and, it, and last thing I'll mention is related to uh, state management packages. I also tend to work for startups and you know small clients that, that need some help really kind of getting into gear with Flutter development. And I consistently find myself having them either remove or drastically reduce their use of state management. I've talked a lot about state management over the years. I've warned about it for years. I think some people believe that I just have some kind of hatred towards those packages. The reality is that I have helped clients recover from the damage of embracing those packages. And it's not that they're inherently evil or something. It's that when you give a relatively junior Flutter developer a tool which makes it easy to entangle every piece of code in their code base, they will do it. So I had a client a year plus ago that just had blocks everywhere. It was an absolutely indecipherable mess of code. I would get on calls and have the developers walk me through what they did and why they did it. And it became clear to all of us that the only people who would ever understand this code are the two people who wrote it. And obviously the goal of a company like that is to grow, to hire more developers, to get beyond where they are. And so they just couldn't survive that structure of code. I spent a month pulling every last block out of that code base, replacing it with incredibly simple widget composition, the occasional value notifier, value listenable, and that was it. And they were off to the races. I'm working with a client right now that's either using Provider or Riverpod. I'm not sure which one it is, but they're essentially using the Provider capability in there. And pretty much any widget you jump into, they're accessing providers. There's not a clear point at which providers are resolved and then passed down the tree. It's just any widget anywhere in the, in the entire widget tree might be accessing these global providers. Providers are essentially globals. They have all of the consequences of globals in any other context. So if you would stay away from, let's say, defining a global variable or a global function, if you feel like that's not a great thing to do, you have to ask yourself why it's appropriate to access a global provider or to use a provider resolution system, which is essentially global access. Again, I'm not saying not to use it. I'm not saying never. But if you're going to use it, you should have a cogent, you should be able to, to provide a cogent explanation for when to use it and when not to use it. Most developers have no idea. Their answer is use it everywhere. And that is a fast path to complete spaghetti code for your Flutter application. And like I said, I have worked with a number of startups and small teams now where we've had to roll back all that stuff because it's just indecipherable. You can't read it. You can't follow it. You can't test it. It's just a big mess. 
and I'll, I'll leave it there, Ray, if you want to pick that up. Oh, that's great, Matt. Uh, you have a lot of points there. Uh, so I was listening. I wasn't thinking of a response um, just yet. If, if anyone, uh, uh, Ray, Cillian, uh, if you have any response uh, to what Matt said or any of your own topics you want to discuss, uh, feel free to jump in. Um, otherwise, I'm going to try to process a bit. And then I do have some thoughts I want to share. But feel free to jump in, Frey or Cillian. All right. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I had uh, the exact same um, experience. And I, I mentioned, I, I noticed like in a lot of startups that I came, they really said like, oh, yeah, we use this package because it is the solution. And I noticed that they didn't understand what's actually happening under the hood. And in a lot of those cases, I just really tried to get it out and went back to the basics. And after that, I noticed that the team was understanding it. I said, okay, now we can replace this method with a package that does just only that and just use it with, with caution and don't jump to um, a package and use it for everything. So it's, uh, I definitely had the same experience with, um, with startups because I understand also as a, as a junior developer, it's, um, yeah, you just see people using this solution and you think, oh, this is the way to go. And you just use it without uh, thinking about consequences because you haven't encountered those. So yeah, definitely had the same experience there. Thanks, Frey. Cillian, do you happen to have any thoughts that you'd like to mention on that topic? Um, on the state management. Um, yeah, I think that, like, yes, state management packages are, you you know, can be useful, right? If, if, if they do what you, what you want them to do, right, in a very specific instance, you know, there's obviously all the different flavors, but typically they they provide similar things. And some of those things are very good and useful, and some of those things are most certainly foot guns for, for you to shoot yourself in the foot if you abuse them, if you don't understand them. I think it's always, like, that's one thing. It's, a, it's quite a general thing, really, in my eyes, which is, like, I don't, I don't think you should... It's always going to be dangerous to abstract away something that you don't understand. I think if you if you know what what the state management package needs to do and it does it exactly the way you want and you just don't want to write the code and you want it to be tested and it to work and it really suits your use case, I think that's good. But I think if you're using it because it is a shortcut and lets you get get to places faster. It's usually it's you it usually won't end up uh, in the best situation. But I think yeah, I think you should always understand what's happening and be able to build something yourself. Um, I, I actually think that's a great um exercise for somebody to do is like to build a simple state management solution. Like, provider really isn't much more than inherited widgets. Um, providing these global um providers, so like it's an interesting thing to do yourself. It's also, I also think it's an interesting learning exercise to actually just play around with the different ones as well to understand um, 
like how they work and what they're actually doing, what they're good at, what they're not good at. Uh, purely as a learning exercise, you know. I remember Redux was was came in uh, for a while, and that when that went away, and that like the pattern there is so is actually really it's actually a very interesting pattern, you know, just as purely as a as a pattern itself. But I I don't think the you know I use provider for it because it's my state management that I use or or re you know whatever other one it is. I don't think that that's that's a good idea, or so yeah. Thanks, Cillian. I, I, I think all that makes sense. <clears throat> I think um, actually it's funny you bring up Redux. The very first blog post that I ever wrote warning about state management was actually back when Redux was getting popular, and so I was mostly focused on Redux. But in that blog post, I also said, you know, by the way, there's this thing called blocks, and that's got major problems too. You mentioned a kind of rule of thumb that you should only use packages that you are capable of building yourself if needed. And I think there is a lot of wisdom in that, though I think I, I might alter that rule a bit. It, we were talking earlier about the date time package built into Flutter, I mean, it's built into Dart. And it is, it is I mean, that, so that one happens to be actually in Dart itself, but let's just pretend that it were an external package, like, for example, Jiffy. I think is a I think that one's JavaScript and Java and a bunch of stuff. I actually don't know what's going on in the date time package. And I don't really want to know. And I probably couldn't build it myself if I wanted to, not without lots of extra research. But the thing about working with dates is that it's a global problem. It's not specific to your app or your customer or your company. It's also a very well tread subject you know pretty much every app has needed some level of awareness of time forever and so i think there are these packages that they handle something that is truly independent from decisions that you're likely to make in your product in your application and they solve a deep problem i think we're all likely to use those even if we are incapable of building those ourselves a similar one might be payment processing now, that's also a little more interesting because that fundamentally depends on the underlying operating system like iOS or Android for what they let you do in terms of payments with the App Store and the Play Store. But I could easily see someone using, let's say, RevenueCat specifically so they can bypass all of that complexity and, and do so in a relatively safe way. You pay a little money, you get access to their package and their service, and it just does payments for you, even though you as a developer or your developers don't know how you would build your own version of revenue cat. I think the big difference here, though, is that the moment we get into anything close to so-called state management, these aren't independent uh, kind of non-product related responsibilities. Like, these are not things that you can attach to the side. You're talking about the fundamental kind of technical arch uh, architecture of your entire application. You, you don't want to outsource that. You don't want other people to control the most foundational set of rules and principles and access patterns for everything that you're actually building for your company or your users or your product. And so in those cases, I think your rule does apply. Either don't use a package, do it yourself because you are truly responsible for it, or 
if you are going to use a package at the root of your entire application, in that case, yes, you need to be capable technically of writing that yourself because at some point you might have to. At some point, um, you know, let's just, let's consider something like Riverpod or a block. What if those packages make a decision that doesn't work for your app? You know, what if there's some fork in the road where either the package facilitates 95% of the world or 5% but can't do both? And so it goes to support the 95%, but you're in that 5% that needs something different. If you don't know how provider or blocks work and you're incapable of implementing that yourself, well, what do you do? Your entire application just ground to a halt. Every widget, every screen, every flow you've made dependent on that package, the package just changed in a way that you can't support and you don't know how to write your own. That's where I think, Cillian, the rule that you mentioned is very important, very critical. Uh, so with that, Cillian, if you have any further thoughts, feel free to jump in. Otherwise, if not, uh, Frey or Ray, either of you are welcome to jump up and, and continue. I'll jump in. Um, so I, uh, that, that's a really, really great point. Um, like it's an incredible uh, and really well expressed uh, point about how um, how the state management it, it is foundational uh, to the architecture, um, and that's something that I'm like quite sensitive to. So that really resonated with me. I think. One of the biggest issues with these discussions about uh, state management is that... Yeah, so, so just going back to you there, Matt. Um, yeah, I, I agree, actually. I think that's a good clarification because absolutely, you know, it's not a golden rule where you have to be able to build everything that you use because otherwise, you know, why would we have use external APIs for services and like say revenue cat or something um, or, or these other complex things that you need that you you know they're not the core experience that you deliver to your users so it's okay it, you know you, you don't want to have to learn how to build everything otherwise you know the whole notion of open source and and building on top of things that exist kind of falls to pieces um so definitely your clarification i agree with um the second point actually just one thing i wanted to add a bit of color to the to the daytime one because i do agree that i wouldn't want to implement the daytime library either. Um, however, I did want to outline the, the the problems with it that I that I encountered because I think that it works well in simple situations. What I mean by that is when it's like a one when it's like a an application that you just want to you just want to take a an input from a user of a of a time like they pick a time or you use a timestamp you convert that to UTC. And then you you convert that back to local when you when you show it to them, right? I mean, even that that for a single user uh, experience, that's easy. For even for a multi-user experience, uh, for a collaborative experience, um, the user choosing their local time, and then it being converted to UTC and maybe stored somewhere in between, or or just communicated between. Um, and, and then reconvert it back to local to each user, so it's it's correct for their time zone. I think the daytime API API that exists in Dart, 
um, does that job pretty well, other than the thing that I mentioned about the type safety. You don't know whether it's a local or a UTC beforehand. It's not the biggest deal in the world. But where it does fall short is actually, if you get into a more complex uh, situation where you have, for example, say I have an application and it's uh, something where anything that, that I choose a date time or there's, the, you know, um, say a CRM or something or, or, or um, you know, a calendar application where you're choosing a time and this needs to be um, correct for, for all the users who, who might be in different time zones when they're looking at it. Um, if, if you have multiple devices um, or you want to be able to specify your time zone in settings, um, it gets to a point where um, as a developer, you need to be using things like a zoned date time or like a time zone aware date time. Um, things like in, instance and intervals and all these type of things um, become more important. And, and, and that, I suppose, is, is where the core date time library starts to not be sufficient. Um, I do also, though, think that, you know, I don't think that the it starts job to implement all of those potentially niche use cases. However, I just wanted to point out that in Java, like Java 1.5, I believe they introduced the date object, very similar to the date time object in Dart and JavaScript. And basically, um, you, you had an implicit time zone. You can never specify the time zone. You can never specify a different time zone. It's either local or UTC and that's it. And it, the, the one in Java actually got it from the JVM. Um, so that, that was a real pain if you wanted to actually use some different time zones. Then in Java 8, they introduced, uh, they pulled in some nice API from, I don't know whether it came from um, .NET or somewhere. It was like called Joda time, but I think it was copied from Noda time. I don't, I don't actually know where it came from, but um, it, it uh, allowed you to do more flexible things like have instance and time zone, uh, zoned date times and things like that, and to be able to actually convert from them easily and, and specify the time zone that you actually care about um, when you're kind of converting, as opposed to just like either local or UTC, no other flexibility or type safety in there. Also, if, if, if you use a date time, you if you only want to use it for a date, like an actual just a date where you talk about your month day, the date time object still has an hour, minute, second, uh, millisecond, microsecond, and a time zone. And that information is not useful to you um, at that point in time. So you're sort of using something which has, again, these little foot guns, like somewhere you forget to convert to local, to ETC, or disregard everything after um, days, i.e. like hours, minutes, seconds, and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, those are my, those are my grabs with the with the daytime API for, for clarification. It's definitely not the worst I've used, um, for sure. You can make it do what you want. But like they do, they did in Java 8 and bring that, and that also came into Android as well, introduced those nice APIs. So it it is out there. Thanks, Julian. 
Yeah, I have no doubt that there are things missing from that the date-time capability. I think just recently I ran into some of that myself when dealing with, uh, I think I was creating a price action stock chart and uh, there are different periods of time and then you can select different like days out of the month or days out of the year. And so I was going forward and backward in time and it wasn't super convenient in some of those cases. So I have no doubt that things are are lacking. And you mentioned Joda time. I think what I said Jiffy earlier and I think what I was thinking of actually was Joda time, though I think there might be a Jiffy package for pub. Um, but from the, from the standpoint of using packages and being capable of implementing them yourself, I will also say that just because a package is missing something still doesn't mean that you want to be in the business of either writing it yourself or even figuring out how you would write it yourself. A similar, like if we go back to, let's say, Revenue Cat, and let's say Revenue Cat at the moment, just hypothetically, doesn't support subscriptions, but you want to provide subscriptions. Probably the answer there is to go ask Revenue Cat to please add that as a feature to their package rather than look at that as a reason why you have to build your own because you'll spend months or years building your own just so you can add one more feature on top. Another example would be Super Editor, which my team at the Flutter Bounty Hunters maintains. If you want a document editor, it's very possible that we're missing a feature that you need. But really what you want to do is just ask us to build the feature and still kind of outsource to that package. Because if you try to build your own document editor from scratch or even figure out how, again, you're going to spend months or years learning nuances of processing keyboard keys versus the input method editor in the operating system versus Mac OS selectors. And what's the difference on mobile and desktop? And how do you show overlay controls like handles and magnifiers and toolbars and how do you mount an, an editor toolbar on top of the software keyboard but you don't show it on desktop and we can go on and on and on and on and at the end of the day maybe your app is just a journaling app or maybe your app is just a productivity app you don't you're not in the business of designing and building document editors or text editors and so trying to develop that expertise, it, I mean, you'll, you'll run your startup into the ground in terms of the cost of payroll and how much time it takes to get out there. So certainly, uh, and I agree with you that I think date time misses some important details. Probably every package does. But I think the dividing line is still, it comes to the question of, is this part of your core competency or responsibility, or is it not a part of your core competency and responsibility? And I think that might be a good dividing line between things that you're willing to fully outsource and things where you have to know how it works and you have to be capable of doing it yourself. Now, I know that, uh, Ray, you were right in the middle of saying something um, when Cillian responded. Did you want to finish your thought? Uh, yeah, no worries. Uh, so what happens with uh, Twitter spaces sometimes, and this happened on my old phone, is that if you're a speaker, because Twitter spaces uses your phone call capabilities, there's sometimes like a 30-second delay. So I actually had to get a Samsung phone in order to be able to converse in real time. Uh, my other phone, the Nothing phone, uh, it, it had like a 30 to like 45-second delay. Uh, so no worries. Uh, I really liked your point about how Flutter, um, the state management, it is central to your architecture of your app. And uh, some people, um, a lot of 
uh, I'm guessing a lot of people, they don't want to make those architectural decisions, and that's totally fine. Um, then you just, you know, follow the tutorials, you pick, you know, provider, river pod, or, you know, block, and you try to do the best that you can. Um, so there are people who are operating in that world. Um, there are people who uh, don't feel comfortable or don't have enough technical knowledge yet um, to make the architectural decisions. Uh, but that's part of what's missing from a lot of the discussions about the state management. Um, to me, what's really important is the philosophy that's behind uh, some of these libraries. So, for example, Flutter Block, uh, it's really important to understand that, you know, there's a company... Uh, of very good ventures behind that library. And that library is going to be shaped by the needs of that company. And that company focuses very, very heavily on testing. Uh, if you look on their uh, some of their posts, um, they talk about testing a lot. Uh, so if you're into testing and you agree with their testing philosophy, um, you know, needing 100% code coverage, then that could be a solution for you. Uh, for me personally, I moved away from Flutterblock because um, after talking with Felix and understanding his philosophy, uh, it seemed that our uh, priorities were not... Um, aligned or in the same direction. So for me, um, I was looking at Flutterblock because of um, uh, three things. So one is uh, object-oriented inheritance. Um, so it looked really... Uh, it, it, Flutterblock used to work in a very good way where uh, you could write um, inheritance um, and create inherited uh, state, um, essentially. Uh, the second was... Uh, a single stream, um, uh, essentially a, a si single, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, it's not parallel. Uh, you, you force everything to go through a single stream um, and you force Uni sequential. Uni unidirectional information flow. Uh, somewhat different. I guess sequentiality or something like that. So it eliminates race conditions. It forces everything to go through its event loop. Um, if so, so Flutter Block, it has you know you can emit events, right? Uh, you can emit events. You can emit state. So uh, that was the second reason. Um, I'm missing like the really nice sounding word for that, but uh, essentially everything had to go through that and it was uh, single threaded. So you had to process events in order. Uh, so that was the great uh, part, number two. And then uh, number three was observability. Um, so I wanted to be able to observe everything that was happening that mutated state. Uh, but Flutterblock has moved away from some of those points uh, quite a bit. So for number two, they now don't enforce uh, single-threaded events by default. Uh, so now you can emit multiple state from different parts of your app. And uh, it's an open question as to how the state resolves. Uh, so that was very surprising to me uh, when I suddenly uh, I upgraded my library from uh, Flutter Block 7 to Flutter Block 8. And all of a sudden, uh, there were you know, dozens of race conditions. <laughs> so that was a pleasant surprise, uh, ironically. Um, and then for reason number three, observability, uh, you can attach, you know, a global observer to observe all the state. Uh, but 
uh, that it's not it's not inherently uh, observable. Uh, so actually implementing that in practice uh, proved to be uh, a bit more challenging. There were quite a few challenges there. Uh, so that's why I think the philosophy uh, and your goals for building you know, your architecture, if you're thinking about architecture, uh, you need to sort of, I guess, get a feel for whether or not that aligns with uh, the library you're, you're using. And to quickly touch a bit on RiverPod, um, the question I have with RiverPod, and I apologize for bringing up these libraries, even though we don't have Remy or Felix here, um, but they are <laughs> quite important. So I think we can talk about them a bit. Uh, so the question I have, and I don't understand the philosophy, is why is RiverPod essentially creating global state with their providers, but then applying its own architecture and its own structure to segment this global state into separate uh, river pods, essentially, without providing any structure or organizational uh, functions or, you know, uh, classes to help organize this global state that is now sliced into pieces. So that's that's the part with river uh, river pod that I don't understand. And maybe in going back to the basics, like I'm trying to do, uh, maybe I'll be able to understand it. Yeah, so I'll open that up to uh, anyone else. And for everyone listening, if you want to come up and, you know, give your thoughts or, you know, uh, join the conversation, which uh, we'd love you to love for you to be able to do so. Uh, just press the mic button, and we'll bring you up, and you'll have priority. To your question about RiverPod, uh, I I don't know. Um, again, my exposure is that I you know I come in I I've come into a code base that's already established the use of it in some way, and then I try to kind of untangle it. Uh, where where the existing team has perhaps overused it or used it in ways that make things harder and not easier. I don't know if River... So you mentioned, Ray, that RiverPod creates the global state or global properties, global objects, whatever, however you want to look at it. I don't know if it's RiverPod that requires that or if that's just a common developer choice. It, uh, it could be either of those. I don't know which one it is. I know that my current client has quite a bit of global providers. I don't know if that's a requirement or if that was a choice that my current client made. I, I assumed that the concept of scoping in RiverPod was there expressly for the purpose of creating certain artifacts that only exist within a scope or a piece of your widget tree. Maybe I misunderstood that concept in RiverPod. But uh, just jumping in. Uh, really quick, Matt. So uh, the originally provider is scoped. So provider is local state localized to your widget tree. Uh, the change going from provider to river pod is that now all river pod objects, if you make, you know, river pod object, uh, then it's global. Okay. That does seem very strange. And that does seem like an imposed, uh, an imposed organization of objects and data that's just kind of begging for a problem. There again, like you said, we don't have Remy on here to explain the rationale or which companies needed that or why. Uh, I know that it, if I saw that, 
I would be very hesitant to buy into that because it's, 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 it's nice when you're starting on the first few screens of an app to have this global state because it's easy to access, but there's only one global area, right? If you think in your head about different areas where stuff exists, there's only one global. You can have lots of different screens and lots of different flows and lots of different directories, but everything that you hoist up into the global area, it's shared across your app no matter how big it gets or how complex it gets, no matter what the security rules might be, no matter how remote your team might be. You know, Maybe you've got a team in San Francisco and a, a separate team in Bangalore, and yet you're working on the same app, and that app is filling this global space. So there are lots of, of reasons why you might want to segment uh, pieces of information and control. And if Riverpod truly forces all of that into essentially, let's call it the global namespace, for lack of a better term, uh, to me, that sounds like a very counterproductive exercise. And it sounds like one of those things that might be useful to you very early on. And then every day, week, month that passes by, it becomes a bigger and bigger problem and area for bugs and mistakes. Right. To provide a bit more information about RiverPod and the reasoning behind some of the decisions, uh, the reason, the primary objective that Remy had was to make providers uh, compile time safe. Um, so what that means is making these RiverPod objects global, by making it global, he could make it so that the compiler can detect if a variable... Uh, you, uh, okay, think about uh, the RiverPod um, object as a variable. So he could make the compiler detect if that variable was initialized or uh, properly referenced, right? So that was the goal. And with it also comes some benefits. For example, now you can have really good uh, developer tooling. So in the inspector, you can just look at, hey, here's the state. Uh, here's, you know, how we can change the state. Um, it, you know, makes testing, you know, quite a bit easier, et cetera. So making things global inherently has, uh, I don't think it's inherently a bad thing. Uh, but what um what I haven't heard discussed and I, what, what I haven't you know, heard in conversation is if you make everything global, you need some organization. And that organization, uh, dependencies between uh, river pods, um, I don't think I haven't heard that discussed too much. And that's been something that has been quite uh, absurd to me where uh, we solve one problem and then there are all these other problems especially if if you're you know going into and scaling an app building an app with hundreds of screens um, then those problems uh, just uh, scale even more so you get more and more problems uh, but th that's why i hope that we can have a discussion about you know perhaps some of these uh architectural or structural decisions and what i'm trying to get as at is like the core problems with uh the core challenges and problems that you run into when you're building an app yeah let me jump on your comment about organizing that global state so you mentioned that there that okay when you're testing there are some conveniences when you're running inspectors there are some conveniences 
But as you also pointed out, there are trade-offs. And when that trade-off is a perpetually worsening level of global complexity, I think you, I think you just can't, you can't make that trade-off. That there's no, there's no set of benefits that are worthy of perpetually degrading the ability to understand, segment, and control your code base. So the, when you talk about global structure, like if you want global structure, there actually is a well-known approach and it's called Redux. But as I mentioned earlier, I, back in 2018, I was warning against Redux for exactly the same reason, which is when you buy into Redux, you are promising to define every last variable of your entire application inside a singular data structure known as the store. And everything in your entire app is some series of, uh, I'm trying to remember their exact chosen terminology, maybe actions through resolvers, which mutate the store, which generates events, which can then lead to actions that are resolved, which mutates the store. And it's that unidirectional information flow I mentioned earlier. Uh, and it's all, it's also in a pipeline, uh, Ray, like you were talking about where it's, it serializes all your changes and, and whatnot. So Redux provides a very clear answer to the question of global structure, but that answer also means that if you want to look at one screen within one flow, within one area of your app, you have an implied dependency on all possible data in the entire application. And this is just, this has always been a scaling nightmare, in my opinion. I remember back at Nest, uh, we didn't use Redux, but we did have this concept of a global data model. And it was such a pain because every time you know, we had multiple teams, different teams dealing with different areas, like one little team working with thermostats, another one working with the security system, another one working with the smoke detector. And we're over here building out our screens and our flows and our features unique to our hardware product. And yet we had to always, like we were always a slave to this global data structure, this global data model, which had certain conventions about when does it load, when does it invalidate, when does it refresh, how does it talk to the server? It was this choke point for everybody all the time. And that's essentially the same thing you're going to get with Redux. It's a global choke point for everybody working on your app at all times. And similarly, whatever that collection of global providers might be, if you're going to structure them in any way at all, you're back to you're essentially recreating a version of Redux where you have a choke point for everybody everywhere at all times. Let's go back to the recommendation, Ray, that where I mentioned the idea of creating entry points for little areas of your app so you can run just your payment flow or just your sign-up flow. Well, good luck doing that if your payment flow and your signup flow both have a dependency on a global data structure that covers your entire application. Now you have to create the entire universe to be able to create and test your payment flow. There are similar consequences within tests. So I hear you on the trade-offs. I, I just simply, based on my own experience across both Android and Flutter across many companies, I just will never understand how any trade-off for something like inspection is worth giving up the, the core of your entire application state. That's just my, my personal view.
Thank you. It feels like I'm not, I'm, I'm so happy to be able to express some of these thoughts and hear your perspective. Um, Cause sometimes it feels like I'm, you know, taking crazy pills where I'm seeing these decisions that are being made and they are, they seem counterproductive. Uh, for example, uh, with a flutter block, um, their solution to some of their problems was to slice up the state into even smaller pieces with qubits. And to me, that was like insane because uh, instead of managing, you know, one stream, uh, the solution is to have these uh, atomic uh, state objects that can operate independently. Um, and then that just introduces a new organizational problem of how do I manage my blocks along with my qubits. So it's also not fair for any developer to have to, uh, and this goes back to uh, my problem with, you know, the, the, what I mentioned about Flutter's uh, mental overhead, um, it, there's a huge mental overhead of having to uh, load the state of a you know page you're working on into your brain. So you have to load the state. You have to understand how the state works. You have to have that in your brain when you're working with you know uh, building any part of a Flutter uh, project. Uh, and my takeaway so far, uh, my observation so far, is that we are missing some tools at the fundamental level um, of Flutter, uh, which is why the state management libraries run into so many issues. So I think, and what you know, Remy has also mentioned, is that um, a lot of these issues will be solved, uh, or hopefully solved, uh, with uh, the coming of meta programming, so being able to, uh, you know, make make uh, annotators essentially without having to do uh, code gen, uh, so that can solve a lot of these state management uh, questions. And uh, one example of that, like how I envision it, is that we'll have uh, what SwiftUI has. So SwiftUI, uh, to your point earlier about uh, creating these. Uh, these localized entry points into an app to, for organization and management purposes. That is actually an industry uh, or a developer like industry standard in uh, iOS projects that's come along in the past like six months or so. Uh, they're called frameworks. So you break apart your iOS project into frameworks and then uh, that's encouraged by SwiftUI because uh, SwiftUI doesn't. Uh, SwiftUI has to compile your uh, your uh, their UI widgets right to display the preview, and that compilation uh, takes you know a few seconds. So uh, XML in Android is rendered you know, by the IDE pretty much immediately. So you click on it, you can see it immediately. But SwiftUI actually has to uh, compile it. So they uh, encourage you to break your huge app into small pieces so their IDE preview works. Um, and that's what a lot of developers are doing. Um, and SwiftUI also has the ability to just annotate, you know, a variable. Uh, you annotate a variable, and then it becomes reactive automatically. So wherever you use that variable, if it changes, it updates the UI. Um, so I think that part is missing inside of Flutter. Um, if we have the ability to uh, annotate 
variables and make any variable reactive instead of just uh, wrapping it in a value notifier and then having to manage uh, the notification uh, lifecycle, that could be potentially a solution, which I'm hopefully looking forward to. Well, let's tie that back to our earlier conversation about actually knowing the parts of your app that are important to the to how your app operates. What you've described, so I've, I've seen those annotations in Swift UI as well, and I understand the desire to have that ability. I will ask the question though, once that becomes common, how many people in the Flutter community will have the slightest clue what those annotations are actually doing? Right now, it may be a little bit verbose, but you are responsible for init state, did update widget, did change dependencies, reassemble, and dispose. And those lifecycle events will never go anywhere. The only question is whether you see them and are aware of them and understand how they work, or whether they become magic behind the scenes that some annotation hooks into, because that's what those annotations will do. It, it might be really convenient for us at the application level, but I assure you that those annotations will, will hook into the life cycle for the state object. They will initialize the value in init state. They will check the widget for an updated value and did update widget. If they have any relationship to inherited widgets, they will actually initialize an update and did change dependencies instead. They may or may not do something during reassemble. That's when you run a uh, hot reload. And then in dispose, of course, you, you must absolutely dispose things and you must dispose of them in the appropriate manner. There are already many developers who struggle with knowing what to do in those life cycles because they just haven't taken the time to learn what they mean. And yet those life cycles are absolutely fundamental to the Flutter pipeline. Those life cycles are the way in which your widgets create elements, create render objects, and existing elements use new widgets to update render objects from old widgets. This is absolutely fundamental to everything Flutter does. So is it really, at the end of the day, is it, is it a win to be able to annotate something and not know how any of that works? Or is it actually preferable to write a little bit more verbosity, which I, I agree takes some time and, and sometimes you're trying to speed through some code and it's annoying to do, but at least in that case, you know exactly what you're doing, when you're doing it, and why you're doing it. Uh, as with all trade-offs, there's no absolute answer there. But having watched so many developers over the years make so many poor decisions and buy into so much magical capability that they don't understand, I worry a lot not only about moving state object properties into those magical annotations, I'm very worried about metaprogramming. There is, if you think it's hard to look at a state object and visualize a widget tree, you just wait until you open code filled with metaprogramming annotations. You're never going to know what anything is doing. You're never going to find the code that actually does it. And you're going to want to just throw your computer out the window. That's the typical experience, I think, for many average developers with metaprogramming. It's, an, it's extraordinarily powerful. There are very specific places where it might be very useful. But... As you can see with any language feature, the moment it exists, everyone will use it for everything. Um, you know, I, I didn't dig into this, but I just saw a tweet where uh, records were being combined with extension methods. Now, maybe there's something there that 
that I just don't understand. I should have dug into the source code that was on screen. But just at first blush, what does it mean if you're taking a record, which is a data structure, and you're adding extension methods, which are uh, isolated behaviors? Well, that's called an object. You just reinvented an object. You've used Dart language features that were meant to provide alternatives to objects, and you're now reinventing objects, but in a super anemic way. You can't subclass. You can't mix in uh, what you've implemented. You can't implement the interface. You've lost all of the type hierarchy language controls because you've used two language features that, that weren't meant to do, weren't meant to create objects. They were meant to be alternatives to objects and you've reinvented objects in your code. So people will absolutely abuse and overuse every language feature we get. And I'm very scared of what people are going to do with metaprogramming. We are, I am already almost at the point where, uh, I actually, I, I did throw my uh, computer out the window, if, metaphorically. Uh, I'm sitting in front of uh, two uh, disassembled computers right now. <laughs> my desktop computers, uh, I took them apart. Uh, so I'm almost in that position. Uh, but yeah, metaprogramming, um, hopefully it gives us more freedom. Uh, like, And that's what's great about Flutter is that so far, most of the decisions taken have given us more freedom instead of taking it away uh, compared to other frameworks. Uh, other frameworks, they restrict your ability to make uh, these architectural decisions. Uh, so for me, at my point in my you know uh, developer uh, journey, um, I really value being able to make these architectural decisions uh, because I think that it's important. Uh, it's they're really important to help solve some problems that otherwise could not be solved before. Uh, uh, that's a really interesting point. I'll have to think a bit more about. Um, what you said about uh, the metaprogramming and how how much mental overhead it could possibly add. I do have something very radical to propose, and I want to get your thoughts on you know it and anyone else's thoughts in here. But what if uh, there's actually two things? So one uh, is what if you remove stateful and stateless widgets, so you combine the two into just a stateless widget, and then you have these automatic uh, magic variables, so you, so to say, uh, where you annotate a variable and it updates the state automatically, which is pretty much what SwiftUI has. And the decision they're making is that, yes, we're going to support this at a framework level. So, um, Matt, you said that it's fundamentally opposed to... Uh, it's it the stateful widget is fundamental to the core of the flutter widget tree um so i do need to think about that a little bit more um but the second uh, radical proposal is i'll i'll probably try to build an app uh with just one global you know change notifier and test out how the performance uh and organize and test out the performance uh, because I suspect that, you know, just putting one change notifier and having it manage, say, you know, however many widgets in the widget tree um, and rebuild just whenever, um, the performance is probably going to be suitable for most apps. So if that's true, then I can 
uh, focus on sort of the organizational issues and run into these organizational challenges with how to organize different properties into classes, et cetera. So instead of making it a state management slash performance issue, it becomes more of an organizational issue. Um, so essentially, I guess those two radical proposals, get rid of stateful and stateless widgets, just use stateless widgets, and then uh, not making any optimizations for a state and just using one change notifier. And SwiftUI, uh, that's essentially their uh, philosophy is that, uh, yes, you can make all these annotations and you don't have to think about uh, the mutations uh, or you know the uh, UI updates, um, and you don't have to think about the performance because uh, we're just gonna you know make it performant. <laughs> and from what I've seen, uh, yeah, it, it it just works. It is performant most of the time. Um, I haven't really seen any hiccups. So uh, yeah, I'm interested in what um, everyone else's thoughts are. Well, one clarification on your point about getting rid of stateful widgets, you're actually proposing the opposite. It is impossible to get rid of stateful widgets. So what you're really proposing is that stateless and stateful widgets are both stateful widgets, and that state is now determined entirely by annotated properties instead of lifecycle methods. You, you cannot, because you mentioned like in your, in your proposal to get rid of stateful widgets, you mentioned rebuilding state which means there's a state object, which means these are stateful widgets. The, in what you've described, you just either have a stateful widget with properties that never change, or you have a stateful widget with properties that do change and they are annotated and you don't write lifecycle methods, you just write a build method, which then is what you find in Swift UI. But if you look at, were Flutter to ever provide that, if you would then jump into the source code behind that annotation, what you would almost certainly find is that the annotation is just putting the initialization, the update, and the disposal into state lifecycle methods, and that state object is, is hidden from you. So it's actually making all widgets stateful widgets, not the other way around. It's just that some stateful widgets might never need to rebuild themselves, and those are things that we currently call stateless. <clears throat> As for putting the notifier at the top of your tree, it's true that you might be able to get away with that for some period of time. What it means, however, is that anytime anything changes in your application, you are rebuilding your entire widget tree. And that will be on the order of initially dozens and then probably hundreds of widgets. Now, most of those widgets won't be different, so hopefully they'll take a pretty short path through the element and render object update. However, um, it is possible that merely rebuilding certain areas of that tree may trigger invalidations of a render object's layout or paint. And if that happens, then you will definitely be doing a lot of extra layout and paint. In general, so by all means, go test it. Go see what you find in terms of the performance characteristics. I, I do not recommend that approach for anybody else um, in terms of just like going down a road because there will be a point where you're simply doing, you're rebuilding way, way, way more than you need to or you should. I mean, when the user types a character into a text field, there is no reason that you should be rebuilding material app, navigator, media query, scaffold, on and on and on and on. Um, 
so give it a try. But for those listening, wait until Ray posts back with his results. Don't don't go switch out your app structure to put a value notifier at the top. Oh, thanks, Matt. Oh, that's really uh, you're abs. See, uh, this is why you're so great. Uh, what you said, you said my point better than I could. Um, you're absolutely right that it would be stateful, so everything would be a stateful widget instead of stateless. Um, so you're absolutely right there. Thank you. Uh, uh, I will. Uh, I, I will report back. I'll try it because uh, <laughs> I've been living at the opposite end. Um, I even wrote my own state management uh, utility uh, slash library to optimize rebuilds. Um, so what I built is um, I, I've been living at the knife's edge of trying to optimize performance because uh, we need that performance for every bit. We need to minimize rebuilds as much as possible for uh, codelessly uh, for that app. And I've been living at that end. And that's made it does make development somewhat more difficult. Uh, but I want to see what it is at the complete opposite end, where I don't worry about performance. I just build and worry about you know uh, as few as possible. Yeah, I think it'll be. So I'm I'm in support of all experimentation uh, as long as we get empirical results. There, there's no wrong experiment. So I'm. I think it'd be great if you want to go experiment and, and you post back and you show us what you learned in the process. Um, I do want to say that I'm, I'm getting near the time where I need to jump off. What I would like to do is say to the audience, anybody who wants to get a comment or a question in before we start kind of uh, shutting things down, please do request to speak. Let's get your question or comment on the floor and then let's kind of make our way over the next 10 to 15 minutes to either uh, shut this thing down, or Ray, if you would like to continue hosting it beyond that, you're welcome to do that too. Oh, I do have a hard stop at four as well, so I need to get going uh, like 10 minutes before that, so I'll be jumping off at the same time you are, Matt. Got it. Okay, and I just brought someone else up onto the stage. I wish that uh, that X, these spaces, would show the full name. So all I see is Jeremy dot 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 Maybe it's Jeremiah, um, but feel free to jump in with any question or comments. Yeah, it's Jeremiah. I just wanted to add a basically a contribution to the last question that uh, Ray mentioned on the purpose or the importance of having stateful and stateless widgets, or, and of course, several others. So I shared a tweet in the thread uh, of one of the videos that was shared by Eric and Adam a while back where they talked about the history of how things came to be. And I think it's a very, very important video for a lot of people to watch uh, because it will open your eyes to why certain things are the way they are, or at least where they, the way, are the way they were, <laughs> yeah, if, if you don't mind my gymnastics. Uh, but it's a very important video, and I think a lot of people should watch it uh, because history is always quite important. That's uh, that's what I wanted to add. I agree, and I think I watched that video in real time when they first published it, or when they I think it was from a stream, right? And so they had the Rubber Duck Engineering Show for a long time. Yes, so I agree. It's a very important video. It's the interesting thing. There are a number of videos that kind of explain flutters foundations in history that's one of them from the rubber duck engineering show 
There's another one, I believe, called the Mahogany sta uh, Staircase that Ian, the tech lead for Flutter, I think he gave that presentation at Google, but they released it publicly. Um, it's There's still a lot of information that isn't captured there, but that's also a good source of information to understand the structure in the early days. We could probably, in our community, we could probably use a good comprehensive uh walk through of the history of Flutter, kind of like the official story of how Flutter came to be and some of the key players. And we could use a, a really strong explanation for how Flutter as a UI framework, how, it, how the pipeline actually works and why. You can find pieces of that all over the place. Uh, like those two videos just mentioned, the one with Eric and Adam and then the one with Ian from Google. There are also, I think Chinmay has also put out some stuff about Impeller. So there are, there are a number of videos describing a number of foundational and historical details. Unfortunately, they're scattered across the internet. They're scattered across time. Some are also low quality videos and audio. It would be great if we just had a really strong historical record for Flutter and a really strong description about how the pipeline works. Maybe that's something that some group of us can put together at some point. Would any, uh, so there's an open invitation to any other listeners who would like to jump up, become speakers and ask a question or make a comment. And we're kind of in the process of working through final questions and comments as we, as we shut this thing down. All right. I, um, I just want to uh, point back to the things that have been said in over the last few hours, or uh, uh, half an hour at least. <laughs> um, I, love the way that you explained um, how state management is actually really about your architecture and that you want to keep that. That really, just like Ray said as well, it really resonated with me. And also, um, I loved how Ray uh, said um, that you have to know the philosophy behind these libraries, why they are created and what the, the values are uh, of the people that maintain them and that use them that they actually that you have to make sure that those are your values as well um those are just two things that really that i really loved about um uh, this space right now and uh, just in general i i think like this concept of having discussions over um, these topics but having them uh voiced uh, in a way that one person speaks at a time, it really feels like it's, um, they come across a lot better and they don't get misinterpreted just like uh, written things mostly, mostly do. So um, I just want to say like great work. Um, I, I love these discussions on the, on the space. Thanks. Thanks, Freight. Uh, I'm glad that you're getting value from it. And I hope that all the other listeners feel like they're getting value as well. It was also, it was interesting to hear your discussion about some of the startups that you've worked with. Uh, and it sounds like we've had very similar experiences on that front in terms of architecture and state management. Uh, obviously, I had my anecdotes and you had your anecdotes, but we didn't know if it was actually a, a broader problem. I think we now have twice as much anecdotal evidence to believe that there are common architectural problems. I think we have twice as much evidence to suggest that a lot of kind of junior Flutter developers 
are immediately throwing in state management stuff that they don't really understand and eventually causes problems they don't know how to solve. So if, if you know, it, we should keep an eye out or an ear open or whatever the metaphor is and see if more people express something similar, because if that really is the state of the industry, we should probably do something about it. Part of, part of my warning about state management many years ago, starting as early as 2018, what I said was, you know, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong about the, the spaghetti nature and the complexity nature of state management. But if I'm right, what we're going to see is a bunch of junior developers all around the world starting a bunch of projects by, by basing everything on these state management concepts in such a way that these companies will never be able to, to take them out. And that's a cost and time issue. Companies, if companies pay you a million dollars to spend a year or two building an app up to a certain point, and you've based everything on blocks or river pods or redux, and then it gets in your way, that company is not going to be willing to pay another million dollars to get it out of there, to rewrite it without that issue. And so my warning was, look, if people mindlessly put this in all the apps, there's going to come a point in like three to five years where all of these Flutter apps reach a certain size where they simply can't move forward. They simply can't implement the next feature because they're so incredibly ham-tied by these decisions that were made in the first weeks or months of the project. And then what's going to happen is that the engineering directors and the CTOs and the CEOs, they're going to keep hearing about why their product didn't ship the necessary features for Q1, Q2, Q3. And they're going to start saying, what the heck is going on? Did we just hire bad developers? And the developers are going to say, no, 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 we're great developers, but we just, it's just this, this, this block thing or this river pod thing or this redux thing. Now, those words aren't going to mean anything to the engineering manager or the CTO or the CEO, what they're going to hear is flutter can't scale. That will literally be what's written in the blog post about why those companies stop using flutter. Flutter can't scale. But what it's really going to be is that people who didn't have the experience to make architectural decisions made decisions to base the entire app on these practices that had predictable uh, issues at when there are a lot of screens, lots of features, lots of teams, lots of complexity. What if Flutter itself ends up being, like what if the industry starts getting rid of Flutter, essentially because so many junior Flutter developers cause their companies to be dependent on certain state management packages and approaches. That was my worry in 2018, it was my worry in 2020. So back in 2018, Redux was the popular thing in 2020, it was blocks. But I worry that we are we doom the entire industry if so many people depend on these packages, which eventually make it difficult or impossible to add features when it's when it's large a large scale project. And again, the people who are going to make the decision to get rid of Flutter, they're not going to know enough to just get rid of blocks or Redux or whatever they're going to think it's a flutter problem and that's going to harm all of us. So that's been my concern and my fear over the years. I hope I'm wrong. I hope it doesn't happen, but I'm worried that it might. I think that I was really hope very well explained. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with uh, with that fear. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, I think it's I wonder if it's a bit like um, also because uh, of how Flutter works, how we have this whole nested widgetry and everything. And but I think even then we have to just like we do in every uh, other framework or or uh, programming languages, we have to try to split things up and not make something like state management like be become too much of um how should i say entangled with uh with everything but that's uh, a challenging thing so i'm not just I, I don't just have that fear i'm living that fear right now um i'm actually behind on a project uh, because personally uh i i, I just can't you know, figure out some of these things. So I'm trying to go back to the basics. That's, that's, I, I think Matt, you've really helped me identify like one of the primary reasons I need to go and relearn some of these things because uh, where I'm at right now, I'm facing like all these challenges and I wouldn't say it's just junior developers making architectural decisions. Uh, so I made these architectural decisions okay, maybe, you know, I'm a junior developer, but I've been thinking about these concepts for a long time and I've spent a lot of hours and done a lot of testing. Um, so I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, a junior to this concept, to the concept of state management and these architectural decisions. Uh, but yet, uh, based on the decisions I've made um, using Flutter Block, using Provider and certain implementations, uh, maybe I, you know, haven't fully implemented the state management libraries according to the vision of uh, the library developers. So the fault could be on me, um, but there is a fault somewhere. And at the end of the day, uh, that fault is my responsibility. So I am behind. Um, I do need to, you know, get to work, get back to work soon um, and, you know, try to catch up as much as possible. Uh, and it's a really real, uh, it's, it's here. Uh, so I would, the fear, uh, I'm living it right now. Um, it might become more widespread in the future. Uh, hopefully not. Uh, hopefully with meta programming or some structural changes, we do have uh, a better approach, but, uh, that's where things are somewhat at. Yeah. So it's not that it's not that only junior developers might choose to use these state management packages or make that decision. It's just that junior developers are extremely susceptible to it. They come on, they go search for instructions and the first thousand blog posts or, or article responses on Google are all about state management, this state management, that they, they literally don't have an opportunity to find any other path. They learn about the super awesome rockstar flutter developers on Twitter follow them and those people are all talking about state management and so there's a really uh it's really easy for junior developers one or two or three not so experienced flutter developers to to start building for a startup and they they're going they don't know enough to actually make analytical decisions and so they follow what they believe is good advice and because nearly the only advice they can find is to use blocks or river pod or uh, redux, or I guess get, get X is among this list as well. They end up doing it. 
and and without even they might not even realize it, but they just made a technical leadership decision that's going to impact that project probably forever. And so that's why I worry more about junior developers. In your case, Ray, you may have you may have gotten yourself into a pickle, but I have a sense that you're going to find your way out because you do know enough, uh, at least now, to kind of understand what the costs were of that decision, and you you'll be able to work your way out of it. I don't know that that's going to be the case for a lot of these startups that that maybe they can only afford the kind of junior developers. They have their founding team and that's it. And either they make it, they, they reach product market fit with that team or not at all. And when that team makes highly consequential tech leadership decisions without even realizing that they're making tech leadership decisions, I think that's going to end badly more times than not. And that's why that tends to be my primary concern on that front. Thanks for the confidence, Matt. I, I think I will. I, I didn't believe in myself, but after you said that, I, I now believe in myself. So that's very encouraging. <laughs> that was really happy funny. To, I'm happy to be a cheerleader <laughs> for you. Go, go get them. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Uh, all right. Anyone else? Uh, and back to you, Matt. Sure. So once again, anybody in the audience who'd like to come up, we're kind of winding things down. So any, would anybody like to make any final comments, ask any final questions before we finish up here today? All right. Well, it looks like we are probably out of comments and questions then. So, uh, Ray, would you like to make any final statements or announcements before we start winding things down? Oh uh, yeah. So if you're still here, uh, thank you for being here. Um, what really helps is we'll have these uh, try to have these every Wednesday, and I think we're getting to a schedule. Uh, we're we're also getting to the point where we we're even going to build you know like an image. So I'll probably make an image, a promo graphic uh, to showcase our schedule. Uh, and Matt talked about building like a landing page or a website. So that so th we're at that point. Um, so thank you all for being here. You've helped us get to uh, being able to have a Flutter discussion. You know every week. And uh, I look forward to hearing all of your voices and we're here. Like sometimes, you know, if you, you, you reach like this point where it's like, I need a, you know, scream about like this flutter issue from the rooftops, or, you know, I found something really cool about flutter and want to share it with everyone. Uh, well, uh, we want to be here for that. Uh, so what would really help is if you like uh, Matt's space, and also, uh, next time you join, uh, make sure to also retweet our spaces as well. Yeah, thanks everybody for coming by. I'll second everything that Ray just said. We appreciate you being here, and the whole point of this is, is so that all of you can hear some ideas that maybe hadn't occurred to you and also provide your insights to the rest of the community. We will see what we can do to slowly but surely make this a bit more of a community institution. Um, for those of you uh, who aren't aware of my team, the Flutter Bounty Hunters, we work exclusively on open source Flutter and Dart packages. So it is possible that we build packages that might be useful for your apps and your organizations. I, we talked a lot about state management today. Certainly none of those packages are state management. We're focused on kind of filling some of the holes in the Flutter framework. We're also 
focused on extending Flutter's ability into new areas, such as our package called Super Editor, which is a document editing toolkit. You can essentially build your own configured text editor or text editing experience for whatever kind of app you may want. But we also have a number of other packages as well. You can find them at flutterbountyhunters.com. Also, if any of you are on one of those startup teams and you're feeling kind of confused about what to do or you're concerned that your code base is going in the wrong direction, I am available for proprietary consulting and development if that's of interest to you. If it is, you can go to superdeclarative.com and find more information. Also, I don't know, I think I think Frey left, if I'm, let me check the audience here. I think Frey left, but Frey mentioned that he also does work with a number of startups and helps them deal with similar issues where the code base is maybe heading in the wrong direction. So it's very possible he offers some services as well. I, I don't know, we haven't talked about that before today, but uh, if my services aren't what you're looking for, then maybe Frey's services are. So with that, thank you everyone for being here, for taking time out of your day to listen and to engage. And we hope to see you 